So as we were saying yesterday, <clears throat> with our thoughts, with our minds, we create the world. We, we see the world according to our perceptions, our thoughts and perceptions. And what we do with our mind influences how we experience life and how others experience us also. And we've, um, we're, going, we're using the Satipatthana Sutra as a framework for this retreat, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. But it is quite a vast subject, so we can only really just touch on it a little bit. And hopefully that little bit will be useful. So we've spoken about the mindfulness of body and, and been working with coming into the body, being present with the body. Mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind states yesterday, and also cultivating more expansive, wholesome mind states. So today we want to speak about mindfulness of, of dhammas, or mindfulness of mind objects. So you'll find in, this, in the suttas, this word dhamma is used in two ways. One in terms of the teaching of the Buddha, the dhamma, and also in terms of uh, dhammas mean things. So the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, it, it is, in a way, it's kind of both of those, actually. It is, it is the objects that arise in the mind. So you can get to know the, the, the state of mind, the mood of the mind. And then there's what arises in the mind, the, the 10,000 things that arise in the mind. So in the, right at the beginning of the retreat, I was speaking about the, the five hindrances and how these pull us off track, they pull us away from the awakened state. They, they, they hinder us, they hinder enlightenment. They're not real obstacles, but they're hindrances. So this is one of the aspects of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So this is the objects of mind, the things that arise in the mind. So the five hindrances you may have been aware of during this retreat. Different ones arise and cease in the mind. And you know, when we're not really understanding the Dharma, we grasp hold of those hindrances and we take them as real, permanent, me and mine, and our life becomes motivated around managing those hindrances. So this is uh, a sure recipe for remaining stuck in samsara. They're constantly trying to, to manage the external world so that the internal world feels more comfortable. <clears throat> it's an endless process. And during the, I mean, this is a relatively short retreat, and it's, it's usual that during the first few days of retreat, the hindrances really start to run riot. So, uh, you know, the mind is constantly going out, looking for things outside of itself. Which is what we, the way we live most of the time, actually. But in a retreat situation, we really, we really see it. And on a longer retreat, there is the opportunity to, to see that and then to let that go. This is long enough to see that. To see that and let that, let that attachment to controlling the external world go. Or getting caught up in 
in loops of doubt or restlessness or aversion in the mind. So there is an opportunity to let that go. You know, like you might be in your room and you're hearing the person next door, and then maybe they're, they're noisy or they have a heater or they snore or something's going on, and the mind goes out. Your mind, you can't, you're not staying in your own room with your own mind, but you're going out to the room next door, getting involved in that person, what they're doing, as though you're almost breaking down the walls and bringing them into your room and complaining about the way they're behaving. But the, the practice actually is to, is to come back to your own mind. So, you know, the mind goes out and it seeks, it seeks to get involved in things outside itself. And then, it, and then it takes issue with those things, or becomes fascinated by those things. But the practice is coming back to bring the mind back to this experience of this mind. So what's going on? Aversion is arising, perhaps. Restlessness, irritation is arising. So what we tend to do is rather than just being with that, we go out and we start complaining about the, the cause of our irritation, believing that that's really the cause. But actually the cause is here. The cause is here. The sound is just a sound. It arises, it's there for a while and it ceases. It's constant, or, or it might be going on for a long time, but it's, it's, it's gonna, at some point it ceases and it changes. So when we meet the world with presence, we no longer, we're no longer in a position to blame the outside world for our suffering. And likewise, you know, we, might, we may f feel like we just want to dis distract ourselves, it's a, it's a little bit too difficult to just stay present with the mind, you know, as it is, and so we start to look at, you know, oh, there's a nice library next door, all those wonderful books, lovely pictures, beautiful, amazing teachings and stories, and start absorbing into the, the library in the break time. But actually, you know, in your life, there's, there's innumerable opportunities to read books. There's, there's wonderful libraries, there's Amazon, you can order whatever you like. You know, there's, there's immense opportunity to read in your in lay life, in your ordinary life, in your non-retreat life. So, you know, this retreat time can be used for being with your mind and mind objects. So don't waste it by absorbing into some wonderful book. It's, it's, it can wait, that book can wait. You can write down the title and, and get it when you leave the retreat if it's really, really important. You don't need to read it here. Just turn back to this book, the book of your own heart and mind. It's the best book you could possibly read. It's the book that can lead you to enlightenment. So there's lots of opportunity to become familiar with the hindrances, and this is one of the, the um, dhammas, the, the, the mind objects that the Buddha speaks about, the five hindrances. And you know, this can kind of take over a large amount of our, our mental space if we let it, without, if, if we don't keep a check on these hindrances. But he also spoke about uh, you know, wholesome factors. As, as mind objects, so there are the, well there's the turning the mind to the five aggregates or the five candors, which is what we were chanting about this morning. The body, 
feeling, perception, thoughts, mental formations, and sense consciousness, the sixth, the, the, sen the consciousness through the senses. So these are, these are also ways we can turn the mind to any one of these. Turn the mind to the body, turn the mind to feeling, turn the mind to the way we perceive. So someone was asking about uh, the sense of feeling rejected last night, and that's, that's a perception. That's a way of perceiving oneself in the world. So we can investigate that. It isn't an absolute truth. And our thoughts, mental formations, thoughts, ideas, plans, we can investigate these. And, and these can be what lead us to understanding Dhamma more deeply, not through following the thinking, not through following each thought and thinking, you know, imagine that we can think ourselves to enlightenment because we can't, but through understanding the nature of thought, how it arises, how it manifests, what it does, what, our, what we do with thought, and then, and then how thought ceases, how, how it is when thoughts subside. There's wonderful times in the meditation where all thoughts just subside. Oh, what a relief. And there is simply this experience of being. Or when we're out in the garden and just enjoying the nature and the mind opens and it's not filled with many thoughts. And it's just this direct experience of the, of the present. So we can investigate, use thought as a, as a, a means to take us deeper. And consciousness. So we're all conscious beings, conscious, sensitive beings, and we tend to because of, because all of these uh, the sense base you know the, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind they're all here in this body. So you know I've got my lot over here, I've got yours over there. So our experience is is, is all of those together it becomes an overwhelming experience of, of self of being someone what we see, what we hear, what we taste, touch, think, smell. But we can meet that in a new way. So we don't have to just carry on in the same old blur of almost a kind of an indifference to these sense bases, these, these sense experiences. Taking them for granted, not indifference, but taking them for granted. And we tend to think that you know, the way we experience is, is the way it is. So I, I recently had to go and have, had, a, had my eye tested for various things. And, and as part of that process, I, I had my pupils dilated. And then when I came out of the doctors, everything was incredibly bright, very bright, very painful in the eyes. And it just struck me how you know, some, some people might be experiencing brightness, this brightness all the time, and I don't experience it all the time. So, you know, for, for somebody else, this might be the normal experience of very bright, if you've got sensitive eyes. And then for someone else, it may be not. And we assume that everybody sees the way we see. We assume that people experience life the way we do, but it isn't so, actually. So it's good to investigate, investigate the... The, the meeting of an object with the, with the eye, a visual object with the eye, what happens? There's just that, that contact, visual object and eye, sense base. And then there's the whole proliferation that we put on top of it. 
that's really beautiful, I like that colour, that brightness makes me happy, you know, that's, that's the extra stuff we put on top. So we can kind of break it down and start to look at the actual direct experience of, for example, eye contact, eye consciousness. We can do the same like at the meal when we're eating, just to be really conscious of what's going on and what happens when that food lands on the tongue and there's a flavour and then, what, and then what, what happens next. Not to, not to try and control it and say, you know, there's no judgement in it, but it's not saying you shouldn't enjoy the meal, but to actually understand what's actually going on. There's contact, then there's a pleasant feeling arising, and then there's the mental proliferations that happen from that. So we can explore these things in this body-mind. So the six sense bases are also dhammas, mind objects, things that we experience in the mind. And uh, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Seven Enlightenment Factors. So you know, these, are, these are Dhammas in the way that we, we tend to think of Dhammas, like the Buddha's teaching. But they are also like aspects of mind that we can observe, that we can cultivate and observe. If we know, if we remember to, to turn our mind in the right way, so when we don't remember, we just keep the, the hindrances just keep on running, basically. It's one after another, after another, after another. And so it's good to know that there, actually, there is actually a choice. You know, we can actually t- turn the mind towards something other than those hindrances. We can turn it towards investigating this experience of body and mind. And we can turn it towards investigating the, the arising of a sense of self, through the Four Noble Truths and cultivating wholesome mind states through the Seven Enlightenment Factors. Ajahn Santachita will speak a bit later about the enlightenment, enlightenment Factors, so I'm not going to go into them because as I say, this is a, a huge subject, it's basically everything that can go on in the mind is a lot. <laughs> so I'm not going to go into all of it. So the Four Noble Truths and the, and the seven enlightenment factors, these are paths to awakening. And the, 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 the first noble truth begins with knowing there is suffering, there is dukkha. It's actually dukkha, the word. It, isn't, it doesn't quite translate as suffering. Suffering is one extreme, but it can also be just a, a basic unsatisfactoriness or stress. Sometimes it's described as stress. When I first came across the Four Noble Truths, I was so, so happy to read this first Noble Truth. <laughs> Sometimes people think it's a bit depressing, but for me it's like the most wonderful thing, that the Buddha was acknowledging there is suffering. I found that so wonderful. Because the society was saying, oh, don't look at that, don't look at that, you know, just look at this, look at this next thing, this nice thing, and, you know, work towards the future and keep, you know, it'll get better. And, my, my kind of feeling was, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I didn't feel like that. And when I looked around, I was quite young when I came across the Four Trees, when I looked around at the people in my life, and the adults in my life, it didn't look like it was getting easier as life went on. It looked like it was getting more and more difficult. And mine was already difficult. I was only 14. It was already kind of barely manageable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I see, okay, well, they're going through a divorce, and 
that one's kind of got some mental issues and you know there are all of these things going on kind of really difficult stuff which I'm sure everyone has someone in their life who has you know or maybe yourself has been through you know, these very challenging times and so my my sense my sense was there is suffering but nobody was saying that people were saying look at the nice bits look at the good bits don't don't get caught in worry so when I heard this noble truth and that it came from the Buddha I was like oh how wonderful but to me that was just the most compassionate thing to actually acknowledge it it was so compassionate because then I didn't have to try and be something other than what I was experiencing I could actually acknowledge yes there is suffering yes life can be really really difficult sometimes well, at that time, I didn't, uh, I couldn't really understand the detail of the teaching, but the fourth noble truth also spoke to me very deeply. So, the first noble truth, there is suffering. I'll go into it in more detail. But the second, that there being a cause of suffering. The third, there being the cessation of suffering, and the the fourth, there being a way that leads to the ending of suffering. So when I came across that Fourth Noble Truth, it was written in a book by Christmas Humphreys, one of the early Buddhists in England. And uh, so there must have been just a sentence in there that said, Fourth Noble Truth is pointing to the way out of suffering being here and now. And when I read that, that was also like a, that was like a light going on in my mind, in a very dark mind. It had been dark for a long time. It was like a light going on because... Uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone has a different conditioning, but I grew up with Christian conditioning. And the message that was coming through to me was, you know, you, if you do good in your life, if, you, if you're a good person and do good in your life, then when you die, you'll go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And if, you're, if you do bad things in your life, then when you die, you'll go to hell. And either way, it'll be fraternity. <laughs> so... What the Buddha was saying, he wasn't saying you're going to have eternal heaven or eternal hell. He was saying, the way out is here and now. You have to turn your mind to the right place and you'll find the way out here and now in this, in this moment, in this very life. So that was a wonderful revelation for me. Because before I didn't have a lot of hope, to be honest, of uh, getting into the heavenly realms. <laughs> But uh, once I came across this teaching, it's like, oh, it's not about it's not about waiting until you die. It's not about trying to, you know, build up a good account now and so that when you die, you, you get into the right place. But it's actually about it's about here and now. It's about this life, this moment, this practice right now. And I didn't really understand how to apply that at that time. But fortunately, I was, uh, kept my ear to the ground and mm-hmm. after some years, mm-hmm. ended up living in a monastery which has been a, a great support and blessing and continues to be. So the, the first noble truth is embraces, is recognizing there is dukkha. It's turning towards dukkha when it arises. And the first noble truth it has three aspects. So there is dukkha. There, dukkha should be understood. So that's the second insight of the first noble truth. And I like to think of this as standing under or embracing suffering or dukkha. It should be understood. 
turn around, turn towards it and embrace it, meet it, understand it. So our habitual response is to, is to push it away, move away from dukkha, not want it. But the, the Buddha is saying, understanding, meeting it, taking it in, seeing, letting it be, become our teacher. And the third aspect of the four, the first noble truth is, is dukkha has been understood. So this, can, this is what we, this we can know for ourselves through our own attention and investigation. And it, and it comes through embracing dukkha, not fighting it, not pushing it away, not trying to kill it. Embracing, meeting, conversing with, understanding, standing under. And then there is a cause of dukkha. So the cause of dukkha is, is grasping attachment. Or another way of putting it is, is the cause of dukkha is the identification of, as, as me and mine. It's the taking hold of and, and grasping hold of and identifying as me and mine. So this is how we create suffering. This is the cause of suffering. So in some ways it's, very, it's, it's not easy, but it's a very simple path. Because you know we can we can recognise when we when we, we take hold of something, and we take hold of pleasant things and painful things, and make them me and mine. We can have a very very unhappy life because we're holding on to all of these identities, which are just actually you know mind created. We don't have to do that. So moment by moment we can learn to recognise that that grasping and attachment and learn how to release the grip. So the second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering, of dukkha, and the, the cause of dukkha should be let go of. So just as if, we, you know, if we're holding a, a hot coal and it's burning our hands, we let go. And it's the same with, with our, our attachment to me and mine. It's a cause of suffering. When we when we really look, when we really investigate, we find you know the it's this it's this sense of holding on to being someone that we have to defend, we have to embellish. This is the cause of our suffering. And if we can let go of that cause, there is this sense of freedom. There's a there's being, and it doesn't mean that we turn into a vegetable. We can still. You know, we still live, we still manifest in the world, but we're not a tight ball of self. And then the third noble truth is that there is cessation of suffering, or that suffering ends. So this is also something that's very, it's a very simple practice, recognizing the ending of suffering. It's very simple, but we tend to overlook it again and again. So any, anything that arises, so like for example, if you think back to the first day when you came here, then you might have had a, a, a particular pain in your knee, or you might have had a, come with a particular difficulty in your heart. And if you look now, you know, is that the same? Is it the same as, when, as the day you arrived? 
Or has it changed? Or has it come and gone and come and gone over this time? But we tend to only notice it when it's present. We notice dukkha when, it, when it's present and then we, we try and push it away, we get into conflict with it. But we don't notice when it ends. And it does end. The little ones end, the big ones end. So it's the third noble truth is, is training the mind to notice when that suffering ends. So it could be just when the bell rings at the end of the meditation, you'll be feeling tight, oh God, when's it going to end? I need to move. And then the bell rings and you're like, oh, that's good. That's the cessation of suffering. There it is. Until the next one arises. But if we never notice the cessation, then we never notice that little moment of freedom that arises after the cessation of suffering. Or it might be a long period of freedom that arises after the ending of suffering. So as we pay attention to those little endings of little sufferings, it, it paves the way for the greater freedom that comes from the greater ending of suffering. Don't underestimate the power of those little steps, you know, those little moments of attention. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path that leads to the ending of suffering. And the, the path that leads to the ending of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is another long list, <laughs> which is um, right, right intention, or right view, which leads to right thought. So right, right intention is actually bringing to mind the Four Noble Truths, bringing to mind the, the suffering, its cause, and the fact of its cessation, and that there is a way out. This leads naturally to right thought, right thought, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-harm and non-ill-will. So in the positive aspect that would be thoughts of generosity, thoughts of loving-kindness and thoughts of compassion. If the thoughts are wholesome in the mind, that naturally leads to right speech, speech that is true, honest, beneficial, kindly. These lead naturally to right action, so how we, how we manifest in the world. They, they kind of all belong together. Or one, if you get the first one right, the others kind of naturally follow along. Right action. And then right action, part of right action is right livelihood, so the way we make a living. And it's not that easy to, to find right livelihood. It's not such an easy thing. But the, the specifically, the Buddha said about not um, not dealing in weapons, not dealing in, in meat, not dealing in alcohol and intoxicants, and it's, I think it's slaves, which nowadays is still going on, slave trade in a different way, not dealing in poison. So, you know. We can get very, very refined around our livelihood and, and what's right and what's not right. And basically, it's very difficult in the world today to have a livelihood which doesn't have some kind of harmful implications somewhere along the line. It's difficult, but to you know, as much as possible, to be living in a way that you're you're making a living from something that's benefiting others, that's wholesome. And then the the last aspects are right effort. So the effort to 
develop what is wholesome. So to, to bring up what is wholesome and to increase what is already so if, if there is no wholesome mind state present to actually put the effort into to bringing up some wholesome mind state not just sitting there with you know, dully or whatever but actually to make the effort to arouse the wholesome so this can be in the meditation and also in our daily life and when the wholesome has arisen to make effort to increase that to enhance what is wholesome and to you know, when there is unwholesome present to make effort to to lessen that, to make that less not to just let it run and also the effort to root out what is unwholesome so go to the root of it so that in that way we're turning our life and our mind in the right direction towards awakening we're not just letting it run its own on its own steam but we're actually actively using right effort to turn our lives around and right mindfulness so being present, aware, clear bringing attention to what we're doing and right concentration so developing a sense of focus clarity, one-pointedness and in a right concentration we can concentrate on all kinds of things we can be very one-pointed on something really unwholesome <laughs> So it's, it's right concentration, so concentration around a wholesome object. So this is the path which leads to the cessation of suffering, to the complete cessation of suffering, complete enlightenment. And I know sometimes in, you know, when, the, when there are monastics, people can think, well, you know, the monastic life is the, is the real kind of full-time path to enlightenment life and I'm just living in lay life so I can't ever probably, I probably never really do it and, but actually what's really important is not the robes or, or the outfit or the hairstyle it's the eightfold power it's the noble eightfold power so if we can bring this into our life, if we can keep reminding ourselves write it down in your refrigerator, you know keep reminding yourself of the eightfold power and, and keep bringing it to mind in your daily life this is the path to enlightenment it's, it's guaranteed to lead to enlightenment and it does um, encompass everything in our life it is, it's like, it's a total it's an all-encompassing path so it may be that we can't, and also as Manasseh, of course if, if we've realised it then we'd be enlightened and, I can speak for myself that I'm not. <laughs> so, you know, of course, it, it, although it's everything in, in our life, we, we forget and we, we look in the wrong places and we get lost again in the delusions. But it's always here, that path is always here, right here under our feet at any moment. We can always turn to it. Nothing that we can experience in our life is an obstacle to this eightfold path. Nothing. So this is uh, the you know the gift of the Buddha to us, and coming into retreat like this, you know we can really start to get to know more deeply the the hindrances 
and to really cultivate the path that leads to the ending of suffering. So the way out is here and now. The cessation of dukkha is here and now. The end of the world is here and now. The creation of the world is here and now. It's all happening. So at any moment that we can let go, that every letting go is like a, a little act of liberation. Every moment of letting go. And we can see how we create ourselves and hold on to that creation. But if we look carefully, we'll see that it's constantly changing. Our, our sense of self is constantly changing depending on who we're with, the situation we're in, and so on. The thoughts, the feelings, the moods, the body itself. They're constantly changing. So really investigate, where, where is this self that I'm holding on to so tightly? And what happens if I release the grip? What happens if I let go around the story, around the fear or identity? It's greatly recommended. Ajahn Chah had a saying, he'd say, if you let go a little, you'll experience a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll experience a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So it's really important to turn our attention back and look at where are we, where are we suffering, where are we holding on? Where are we creating ourselves? What would it be like to let go? So becoming aware of the objects of mind and cultivating that which is wholesome in the mind. With our minds we create the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate